The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. This is Shaken and Stirred. I'm Nigel Barker, um, broadcasting from my office for the first time ever on this show, which uh, will obviously completely change the way this show feels and sounds and looks, of course, because if you're listening, you really care about where I'm sitting. But anyway, I'm here with my co-host, Tom Astor in England, in Oxford. How are you, Tom? Good, Nigel. How are you? I'm very well. Very well indeed. In fact, I hear that you have our guest today sequestered in your kitchen, in your house. Exactly. He's, he's a friend of mine. and He has a, a, a dwelling, a cottage in such a remote place that there is absolutely no access to internet. Where he goes to, I'm not going to give it away too much, but he certainly goes to work in this seclusion and I managed to drag him out of seclusion, get him over to my house and make him a, 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 an interesting nationality relevant cocktail. And, and he's over there, yeah, right now. So, it's, it's, so what uh, this means people is that our guest today has already been drinking with Tom. So if they're both slurring throughout the whole podcast, you probably know why, because this has been, uh, they probably had like their, their third or fourth cocktail. Talking about that, what are you drinking by the way? Well, it might have had some mini strokes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking a really, really, I'm drinking a new drink no one's ever heard of. I'm drinking, once again, I had a vodka martini last night and it was so good that I just didn't see the point of trying to do anything else other than have another one tonight. So I'm drinking the same thing. Vodka martini with a twist. With a twist. Third month shaking. What are you drinking? Well, I, I decided to do something a little different. I went for a, a black Russian. Huh. Oh, actually, I got a white Russian. I forget. I was going to do a black Russian. I actually did a white Russian. So excuse me. I did a white Russian, which is essentially two parts vodka to one part Klua stirred with then heavy cream put over the top. That's so just to kind of, you know, really amp up the calories. And um, yeah. Made famous by the dude in The Big Lebowski. That's right. You've, you've made a couple of these before and I've, I've never really had one or never really got into it. And the heavy cream kind of put me off. But I was like, whatever, at this point, it kind of felt like it. I've been kind of dreaming about it. So sometimes I dream about a drink and I'm like, okay, I've got to have it. And actually, you mentioned peach snaps the other day in one of your drinks. And I went out and bought some peach snaps today. And I, the woman at the store said to me, oh, what are you going to make with peach snaps? Because I'm always in there buying something interesting. And, and to be honest with you, I was like, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sure yet. I just know that I want to make something with peach snaps. So, but tell me something with white, right? White Russian. You talk about the cream on top. Now I happen to know that you're, you know, you've got you're intolerant in lots of ways on lots of things. Uh, one of them that's being mostly lack- just mostly just you actually. I'm intolerant. I thought it was a sort of people generally, you know, all sorts of different things. Probably not the right platform to go into that. But one of the things that you're totally intolerant of is lactose. It turns out that I'm actually not intolerant intolerant to lactose. I'm just. So back years ago, I thought I was. You've been basically attention-seeking, you make a big thing of it for the last how many years, when it's just a load of bullshit. Complete BS. That just doesn't surprise me. You might have, you might have seen that I actually enjoy eating cheese and things like that. It turns out, though, that my wife and my daughter are lactose intolerant. I am not. But um, I, kind of, I kind of went off milk because I didn't eat, drink it, I guess, or eat it, really, or in any, any shape or form for almost 20-odd years. But um, I'm thinking I'm going to bring it all back with the white Russian. Well, the white Russian is about the closest you're ever going to get to actually being able to eat it, because it is like a meal. It is. It is. It's, it's actually quite delicious. Chin chin. Chin chin. So, a little bit of booze news. In the world of booze news, 
you know, I don't want to go on about, I mean, we always, we don't, we don't really go on about coronavirus, but of course we are in the middle of a pandemic. So it's hard to sort of get away from the elephant in the room, but communion. And so I'm bringing in, last time I talked about politics and I was kind of like shot down a little bit, but I'm going to talk about religion this time because uh, with my booze news, because if there's one thing the coronavirus has sort of done, it has really caused a problem when it comes to the communion cup, right? And wine at church and the blood of Christ and what have you. And one may think, okay, it's not such a big deal, but when you realize how many people go to church on a weekend, on, you know, on a Sunday and expect communion and haven't been able to do so. And the business behind the wine that is actually created for communion, and it's quite a big business. And you know, all that wine, and it's not regular wine. So they actually have a special type of wine that they make in certainly in the Catholic church, but in for the churches all, all over America and I know all over the world that it doesn't have the same alcohol content necessarily, but it more than anything, it doesn't have any additives. So one of the rules of the Catholic church is that you can't put anything in the wine to preserve it other than sulfites, uh, which apparently by all accounts have been sort of deemed okay by the Vatican. But there are, it's literally all these sort of the vineyards in the, in the US that have to produce this special wine for, for churches and what have you, they're really suffering and don't know what to do and are about to um, sort of get rid of all their produce um, and literally just let it go because they're not even bottling it, in fact, for the first time ever, almost, since these, these, these establishments and, and the estates have started. So, you know, that's pretty unusual. You know, and on, on top of that, there's the concept that well, I was looking into the whole, you know, communion and holy communion, and I came across an article which was talking about, you know, can alcoholics take holy communion? Wow. <laughs> I know, right? And it turns out that, that they can, that actually there is a, a form of wine that they make, especially for holy communion, that has been deemed okay by the Vatican as well, that has only 1% alcohol to it. So they, it's very, very low alcohol. And so it actually, you know, and I often wondered when, you know, you go up and you collect, get the blood of wine, blood of Christ, whether there was, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you couldn't actually, you know, receive communion. And it turns out they've got a special wine just for alcoholics that um, was created about 20 years uh, ago. You know something, the whole thing to me, I mean, I'm probably going to get a bit of backlash from the Catholics here, but the whole thing seems to me, I mean, there is no way I would, walk into a crowd of people I don't know and just start sharing my drink, offering people a sip of my pint. I mean, it's it's one, I mean, come on. Do you think over the years, talk about, maybe we can bring this right back around to coronavirus. You know, the bubonic plague, you know, as we know, is passed to fleas to rats, to people to blah, blah, blah. I mean, all these plagues that happened over centuries since the Catholic Church introduced this concept of the communion cup. I mean, can you imagine when everyone was kind of pretty much 99% of the population used to go to church every Sunday. I mean, the transmission of every single disease, you know, communicable disease. I mean, herpes for one. There's no way I would go, to, go and just the thought. Anyway, I mean, just would you, it's like, would you go and have a bath in the, you know, the 10 strangers have been in before? No, it's a bit like a hot tub. I wouldn't, you know, I don't know. Anyway. So is it the end of the communion cup? Who knows? This could be. It should be on health ground, surely. I mean, Christ, you know, I don't want to go. Who would, who would want to go and sip of a cup? that you have no idea what the guy's been, or the girl's been doing the night before, and you have no idea what that blister on the sort of the corner of their mouth is, you know. <laughs> anyway, move, this moving, sort of moving on a little bit. <laughs> moving the, on just a little the, bit. 
the other problem with the communion is is if it if the if the wine doesn't get finished, the priest has to because it's been blessed has to finish it. And we've all seen that. We've all seen the priest at the end guzzle down the end of the. I remember as a kid looking at the priest and asking my mum, I'm like, does he get drunk when he does that? You know, well, if he pours down the last bit. I don't believe the one percent business. I tell you what, we've got some. We've got someone coming on quite soon who we know is a staunch. Um, I wouldn't say part of the temperance movement, but I mean, you know, a staunch non-drinker. And maybe perhaps we should wait and ask them about the reality of, you know, I'm, I'm sure in a meeting that he's been at, someone's come in saying they don't know what to do because, We shall know. find out, we shall find out. This week's guest is an award-winning filmmaker, originally from Zimbabwe. He started off his film career making documentaries and commercials before creating the Found Theatre Company. He has made two critically acclaimed feature films and is currently at work on his third. Please welcome director-writer Duncan Ward. Duncan, how are you, mate? I'm very well, Nigel. Yourself? I'm extremely well. We've already sort of let everyone know that you're actually sort of in Tom's kitchen, Um, although with a a zebra on the wall right above your head, I'm not quite sure you're in this kitchen, or are you? Do you have a zebra in your kitchen, Tom? It's a stable. I do. I put him in the stable. No, he's in my kitchen. It, yeah, in front of the fire. I'm in my library where the heating's broken. So I decided to point out to everybody how incredibly kind I am, really, fundamentally. <laughs> I'll do anything for to get a good podcast, right? So what are you drinking, Duncan? That looks like it's out of a teacup, for goodness sake. It's a strange mixture. Uh, it's Roybart tea with a little bit of uh, Jameson's in it. Okay, are we, are we nursing a cold or something? Yeah, I came down with a temperature. I started sweating and I lost my sense of taste. Uh, and, and that was me. <laughs> and you're now in my kitchen, breathing. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it's the normal winter pattern. Wow. Okay, good. Well, well, hopefully you're going to be able to survive this podcast through to the end. If you just go sort of dead quiet during the process, we'll, we'll know what's happened to you. Survive. Well, we've got a technical malfunction. I'm so pleased it's you, right? You can always say something like, set the volume to three. Well, <laughs> it's not like a male Alexa. Right, for anyone listening at the moment, Nigel's in his office and there's noises coming from the speaker. He doesn't know what it is. And now he's disappeared. Tom, can you hear me? Yeah. And yeah. you can see me, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Okay, good. So that was the most extraordinary thing. It's never happened. But then I never do this in my office, by the way, Duncan. This is the first time. All right, Duncan. So we, we've established that you, you've got COVID and you've very kindly decided to do Shaken and Stirred with us as well. We're all in different rooms. It's, it's complete chaos. We don't know what's happening, but it seems very normal. That's what Shaken and Stirred is pretty much all about. Let's get to the, the bottom of this. You guys, you're, you're, you're living quite close to Tom right now, but are you living there or are you just there to write? No, it's my, I, I, I'm about half an hour away. So yeah, it's a cottage. I live in right there and uh, I haven't been to London for six months. No, I know. Well, I think people aren't traveling like they used to, are they? I mean, I, I haven't hardly gone back to New York myself. I'm sort of ensconced up in Woodstock, mm-hmm. upstate New York. And it feels like New York City because everybody from the city is here. I don't know if that's the same with you. Has, has everybody migrated? How's the, as the fall, as the autumn leaves, are they all turning? Is the color there beautiful? Gorgeous, absolutely stunning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very, very, very beautiful. As I'm sure it is where you are too. How did you guys meet the two of you? I can't remember. It was in a dungeon. Tom was apprenticing. No, no, no. Tom was be serious about this. Tom was apprenticing in his masseur uh, course that he didn't 
fully qualified. And he needed some extra people to do the lessons, so yeah. I can, as I can only imagine, he actually came over to New York originally to be my valet. We, yeah, we agreed no, no. not to discuss that, Duncan. He, he has an incredible propensity for service. <laughs> he, I wanted he, to go to, I, I offered my services to go to LA to be Nigel's valet when he was doing America's Next Top Model. I thought it'd be kind of an interesting period of life, you know, six months, and I could pretend to be his valet and take him to the studio every day. There's a precedent for that, you know, there was an English poet, his name will come to me, and it was beneath him to marry his maid, but he went ahead with it anyway, but insisted that she photographed her every day doing his, um, her, her, uh, something at the head of the invention of photography. It's the most amazing collection of pictures, domestic pictures, of a man's wife cleaning. <laughs> what are you trying to say, Duncan? Well, I think, first of all, he might be talking about his own collection of photographs, because didn't you start off as a photographer yourself back in the early parts of your career, Duncan? Completely expediently, yeah. No, I wanted to work for a particular man called Martin Schaffer, great, great photographer, uh, but a great lighting man, old-style plate camera, 10 by 8 I went to go and learn his lighting. This is all in a studio, all out of black. You do everything out of dark, you only bring the lights in as to what you want people to see. And it's old-fashioned, you know, plate camera, bellows camera, moves around. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Nigel's thinking really blank. He's like, I, I mean, because by the time he decided to switch careers and become a photographer, they I think it was almost digital by then, wasn't it? Uh, no, but, uh, but, but I actually did bring the very first digital cameras to the US. So we shot with the very first Mamiya digital cameras that ever entered the United States. There were five of them, and all five broke uh, one after the other. And only on the final camera did we actually manage to complete the shoot. And we had the guys over from Mamiya, the guy, and that was, in, that was on America's Next Top Model. That was the very first shoot we ever did in 2003. So wow. it's amazing how, uh, how recent digital has been, because now it's, it's pretty much erased regular photography other than fine art. Yeah, no, it's interesting, though, because you, you mentioned that you went very specifically to learn the lighting from this one photographer. Mm -hmm. Why was that? I mean, as in, I understand you like the lighting that this guy produced, but did you know that early on what you wanted to do, that you were that interested, that focused in a certain look and style? No, I knew I wanted to make films, but in those days, the union wouldn't let you join. You couldn't get into the film industry unless you were a union member. You couldn't become a union member unless you were in the film industry. So it was a very neptunistic, um, on the ground, they just fed back their own people. So if you came like me from Zimbabwe or South Africa, or wherever I was going by that time, you were an outsider. And the only way in was through photography in a kind of weird, because it was a lesser, a lesser controlled environment. And, and then I, I won a competition, a film competition, so it sort of set the ball rolling. I thought you were going to say it was, it's, a, it's a lesser profession. And, I, I, no, and no, then you no, no, clearly, no. quite quickly, kind of changed no, no, no. The, the, what you were saying into something else. I was like, wait a second here. Wait. It's a great profession. I, would, I was offered the studio and everything to carry on with it, but I, I just didn't want to do it. it you know, I wanted to make films. But without knowing, in hindsight, I would have taken the studio just for the real, real estate. But I didn't have any idea how difficult filmmaking would be and what type of people I would have to deal with in the process and how little I had in common with a lot of them.
And how, how much does that change now? Is that changed that's at a, all? That's a lot. Hang on, nice. That's a lot. That's a, that, he's just giving you a, an awful lot. No, I know. To... We need to dig in. Uh, I would say it's, you know, um, the auteur aspect of film has always been an intellectual, uh, artistic environment. And that's where I uh, obviously hung my hat. But it's never been a great commercial one. So it's reliant on having deep pockets to sustain the period of total and absolute neglect and unemployment. And I, I'm happy to say this has gone on for almost 40 years. <laughs> Which part? All parts? Or just the, the, the principal acts of neglect on the... Uh, uh, but, you know, you make a few movies, you do a couple of moments, you have a few spins around the block, but every time is a renewal and it's just as if you haven't done a single thing. Okay, look, you've done some big, pretty big movies, but before we get to that, I mean, it's, I'm curious to know, because there are obviously lots of filmmakers out there who are very curious, very interested, and a lot of people who listen to what I talk about are photographers, are young filmmakers, because mm -hmm. of my background. And, you know, I'm curious on a couple of things. One, how do you see the industry has changed since you started to now? And two, is, is it anything alike whatsoever? Because, I mean, it's, there are, I mean, pretty much everyone, to some extent, feel, thinks that they're a filmmaker these days. I started my own film company from the moment I was commissioned to make a film. So I never, I never began as an assistant or any of the trajectories that is the normal practice. And I hired people right from the get-go. So I had to learn very quickly on a particular job. We were doing a documentary, making of for Nick Rogue, his movie Insignificance. And um, it was learning on the set practically. But because it's analog, it, it's one thing after another. The process is very, very commonsensical and it has a science in it because there's, there's chemistry and photography and there's a sort of engineering and setup and there's a sort of almost military thing in terms of arriving on the day, getting things organized. And that led you to consider every aspect because it was costly. So even on 16 mil, or even if you're shooting Super 8 in those days, everything had a per foot cost in film. And so if you're controlling it and you're broke to begin with and you're trying not to get further into debt, the whole thing becomes an interesting equation. Digital lets people overshoot. They have no sense of frame rate because in film you counted your frames 24, 25. And when you edited, you spliced the frames. So you were very, very aware of the musicality in cutting, because it's, it's a series of beats and so on. Digital, just a strip of images, and you can splice it at any place. So no, my contention is that analog bred filmmakers, digital make, gave people access to filmmaking. Right, that's a, it's a, it's a good comparison. And I think it's probably this rings true with photographers as well. I mean, I think that there's certainly a lot of photographers out there who are the old school photographers who, are upset by the concept of so many people, you know, in, in a way, calling themselves photographers, running around just and, and you know, with their phone basically and taking mm -hmm. interesting-looking oh. shots, and that there's no real commitment. Yeah, one what, what, one picture out of every hundred might be actually plausible, but the chemical aspect of photography, there's a wonderful hidden art in it. So the alchemy is what's missing in the digital world. It's all too apparent and easy, and you know, it's it's dovetails into 
all, all the tropes of the modern era anyway, you know, is that people don't want, they don't want excessively uh, privileged elite core of people. They want everyone to have an accessible, uh, mean average uh, attempt at stuff. So, you know, it's slightly frowned upon uh, people being really good. I mean, do you think filmmaking then has, has declined at all? I mean, what do you think of the quality of films being made today then, than perhaps were made before the digital era? Have you seen a, a general decline in the sort of the overall look and feel of films? There's a massive fall off in inventiveness and story, uh, the auteurship. Of, there's a lot of, of similarity. There's a great deal of pastiche. and um, because digital lets people overshoot, there is a sense of a weakening of real value construct, if you know what I mean, is that when you shoot stuff on film, you've only got X amount of takes you can afford. So you've really got to hone, i.e. your rehearsals, your whole storytelling in the digital era. So yeah, so commercially, uh, there's never been more films made ever than what they are today. But do you even have the time to see uh, an, an, a, a slice of what's going on? So, you know, when I first started, there were probably 70 festivals worldwide. There's something, and I stand corrected if someone has got the actual number, but there's something like over 3,000 today. Wow. And every one of those has a full program. So anything from 10 to 100 films in them are covering all sorts of categories. So it's a very, very subscribed industry, but the, the sort of number-based thing is uh, 300 might get picked up, of which 30 might possibly do well. Uh, the, the financial stuff is at variance with the volume. With that, at the same time, you've got opening up in the last how many years, you've got all these platforms opening up like the Netflix, Amazon Prime, you've Great. got all these, Great. You've got all these, 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 kind of, these, these platforms to many more platforms, much more accessibility for people to have two film and two more films than they would have, you know, from back in the day when you had to go to the pictures, you had to go to the cinema to watch film. So there are more films, but there's also, there are many more ways to, to, to watch them. Is that diluting the kind of quality? Is it pandering to the masses or is it, is it do you see that as a problem? No, I don't. I see it as a great opportunity and there's enormous amount of resurgence in quality of storytelling on one level because of the, you know, the Netflix and the Amazons and the Apples and all these other streaming platforms that are competing with old-fashioned cinema distribution. I'm a Luddite. I like to go to the cinema and see a big screen projection of a great film. I like the quality of projection and I like the sound in a movie house and I like the cathedral atmosphere of a film. I am easily distracted in my domestic environment when watching a movie. You know, there's sort of pressing realities. But if I was a young kid, uh, I wouldn't know any difference. So my, my habits would be very, very, very uh, different to my own. So I would say young people are completely conversant with it. Your, your habits might have to change. I mean, today, I was reading today that Cineworld, which has thousands of cinemas mm. across Europe, has been forced to, and in America, has been forced to shut with a loss of four, four five, six thousand jobs. It's in, in the States as well. Um, and the reason it's been forced to shut is purely based on the fact that 
the release of the James Bond film has been pushed to the spring because of COVID and because of the fear of the, the filmmakers about, you know, people actually turning up to the cinema to actually go see their film with this COVID thing going on, that it's actually for one film has forced the closure of the thousands of cinemas. And, well, I tell and you, it, it, it wasn't one film. It was the release of Tenant didn't do particularly well. And there was a great ambition that it should do. You know, these are movies where they spend two hundred million making. You know, did it do badly because of COVID, though? Because people yeah, yeah. COVID has undone decades of growth in the industry, but because it's really difficult to make a movie nowadays, because you have to have all this compliance, and the only people who can afford the compliance are the top set of producers, uh, you know, top distributors, Netflix, and so on. So people like me, you know, we're the crumbs off the table, if you like. You know, we are vacuumed, you know. So making a film going forward, and, I, and it's, it hasn't helped because I'm obviously just at the edge of another movie and um, trying to find the raison d'etre to encourage investment in it is going to become another Kilimanjaro. And, you, and look, I mean, I, I know you're, you're in, the, in the process of trying to create your film down a dirt track, and I, I definitely want to get into that but I'm what exactly what you're talking about right now I think is just it's it's so I don't know it's, it's made such a huge impact obviously on the whole industry that I've worked in television for years I've been I was just on the, on the phone just yesterday with some of the people I know from NBC on the talent producers and I mean literally the industry has come to a grinding halt I mean, oh, there are yeah. top ADs and and what have you who have worked on major films who are doing jobs that are really almost like intern style jobs to make a, a few hundred dollars just to keep their bills being paid and what have you. I mean, it's, it is a, sort of a shocking situation that this industry is in right now. We recently interviewed Ryan Bingham and he was sequestered in Montana with the whole of his set and crew for several weeks before shooting. And then they're gonna have to stay there and shoot the entire season in one spot without leaving. Um, otherwise, they they can't shoot their their show Yellowstone. You know, and it's mm -hmm. the, the people are trying to just, you know figure out how to do these things and, mm -hmm. and where to do them, and uh, without so that they can sort of almost be in a bubble and do it, a bit like the NBA. I mean, it's how how does that affect costs and and certainly independent films? Well, you see, I, I have a, I was thinking about this uh, over the last few days with independent films in all kind of strict regimes. The arts have always found ways of being subversive. And you saw it, you know, in the 20s, you saw it through Germany, you saw it, you know, in the mid-century. The thriving arts world during the Thatcher period was fascinating. So I have a feeling a lot of young cineastas, really genuine, passionate kids will find a way around it, produce things that are low budget but intense because the illegality of the way they have to go about it will insist on invention. And I think we are in for a raft of fascinating insights into human endeavor. But definitely, it is a massive, massive erosion of the liberal arts. It falls into the hands of a whole bunch of other people because they don't have any commentary for the next year and a half uh, about how they, what they say, how they say it, and, and where they want to take you. It's interesting because that's a very much a glass half full look on what it could. It's basically a very perilous situation to this business because, you know, it's funny that 
you know, I like was we talking about living in New York City earlier on, and so many people have left the city. So many people have left New York. But what that's sort of done, and, and housing prices are collapsing, rents are coming down because no one's oh, there. Really? But what's happened is, is a lot of young people are moving back into the mm -hmm, city. A lot mm -hmm. of artists who had to have forced out of the city have now the ability to sort of move back in again. And there is a sort of slight dangerous feel to New York that I remember feeling in the early 90s when I mm -hmm. first arrived. Very good. To, to your point, like when, so when sometimes when these sorts of things happen, there is a, a resurgence of the sort of the blues and, you know, art and, mm -hmm. you know, things that are difficult for people. And you, you simply can't perhaps create that kind of material unless you are in a desperate situation. Yeah, I think that that's true. And, um, you know, Berlin is an excellent example. At the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was such an economic crisis with the unification of Germany and um, that Berlin was super cheap. All the smart people in Europe, all the artists went to Berlin, got great spaces, great studio. They made Berlin great again. And it lasted for like 15 years before all the money turned up and started buying the properties out. And now it's, now it's bourgeois, but it was a heaven. And um, therein lies a big problem. It is a interesting anti-bourgeois illness because it puts the fear of God into a great deal of urban people who uh, are, are not equipped to deal with being on their own, being in isolation. Their lives are much more social. They've had, you know, three, four decades of being harried into becoming mass consumers. And suddenly the tap has turned off and they've got to deal with themselves. So mental illness, family disintegration, and uh, exciting thoughts. It's a real pot. And we're not even in the middle of it yet. All things that you've just been through recently. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I am. I have to say, when Tom said, do you want to do this? And I thought, <laughs> how could I be a message of hope? <laughs> okay. And that's pretty, I, much how, that's pretty much how Tom sold you onto the show, by the way. It's like, well, he's a I, message of hope. I was like, I was going to say that Nigel's last comment that it's a glass half full, you know, chat. Well, it was a glass half full before you drop it on the floor. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. It sounded more like. Anyway. No, but I am generally, I am generally weirdly. I mean, as much as it's frustrating and problematic and, and many people's lives are going to be absolutely decimated and I'm one of them. I, I think if, if you've got a mind for renewal, this is a very good period to draw up your energies, your mind, and, and start to pursue that. Um, and if I were a 20-year-old, without any history, without any knowledge of the struggles artists and people have in the past to get to any measure of comfort or any measure of security, the cliff face that they're facing is going to be like skydiving. Mm. But on that level, I mean, Nigel, you, you know, your profession, have you, have you, are you signing up for sort of, you know, I could come and give you some massage lessons or, I mean, you think you're changing career? I'm constantly pivoting, Tom. Constantly. Pivoting. But if you could choose one career that would just sort of, you fancied, but you didn't want anyone to really know that that was in your sort of sexual endeavours, I mean, both of you, where, where, what do you think it might be? It had to involve some level of social interaction. Oh, because I was going to say, if there was one thing, I, I would probably become an author. 
I think if I could write and write books and just sort of nestle away in, 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 the, in the woods and, and do something, if I have to be social, that's a whole different thing. But there's, um, if, if writing is not natural to you, there's a fantastic act of plagiarism that's much unmined. There's a lot of 19th century Italian authors that have, were translated in the 19th century, but never read. It'll be so unique and original. It'll be a star, stellar. There's a guy called um, uh, Denuncia. He was famous, but unreadable. But now he might actually be a bestseller. But as a Nigel Barker novel, it could actually top, top one of the lists. So you suddenly see me come out with a whole line of books <laughs> and you'll know what's happened, won't you? Nigel, you do yourself down. Nigel's on the on the New York Times bestseller list, but I mean, he was so clever. He did a book. He did a book about models, so you don't have to. It hasn't. You don't have to actually read it. You can't. There's nothing to read. That, is. Is that yours? Oh, wonderful! I would love a signed autographed edition. Absolutely, I will, I will have one sent off to you. It's, it became a New York Times bestseller for all of a, all of two weeks. I got to number number five. Are the photographs yours in it? It's a collection of, it's not all mine. So it's, a, it's from the turn of the century. It's a hundred years of photographs and models and what have you. And oh, great. Um, okay, so great. when it comes to my era, you have my photographs, but, but um, we, we start in the sort of 1920s. So. Do you know the 1920s to 1940s photographic uh, series of publications? Yeah, I know, absolutely. With the ring bind uh, yeah. spine. Yes, uh, I mean such an amazing body of work. Incredible body of work. Incredible work. I, look, I'm curious. Going back to your filmmaking and what have you, and you talked, you were talking about a lot of independent films and things that you're working on now, and certainly independent world. But you had a very successful movie, Boogie Woogie. Um, <laughs> and whenever <laughs> I say it, I kind of laugh. I'm not sure how does one this even say that without sounding ridiculous. And when I was saying it yesterday, my wife, who's American, pretty much was like, "No, you can't say that." Yeah, so it it's it's named after the um, the the Mondrian painting Boogie Woogie uh, Broadway. The whole movie, I mean, for a start, it, it's it's a pretty curious novel because the author wrote homophobic rant against his mother's lesbianism, and this was a construct to a hide it but b make it public. And so when I was approached to adapt it. Uh, it was an interesting psychological, because I knew the writer quite well. And I suspect his therapist knows what I know. <laughs> but so, could you consider this film a studio film? Because it seems you've got all these big actors, it's a very well-produced, you know, you know, independent films aren't well-produced, but it has that look of a very glossy type of film. Is, is that a studio film? No, that's John Matheson, who is a, is a top-flight cinematographer. And that was my first feature. And the golden rule is surround yourself with top talent. So I was lucky to have John, who's an old friend. We started together. And he, you know, he's a guy that is the director of photography, Gladiator, and several other you know, major movies. He's Mr. Hollywood, really. And, but he's a brilliant filmmaker. And uh, three days before we were shooting, I mean, I had... And I, I don't mind the liable that this might create. I had three complete incompetent producers and one who could just on a good day make some sense. So I had three people uh, destroying a film before we could even get it made. And if it hadn't been for John and myself and this one other uh, brought in line producer, we would never have completed the movie. 
but against all the background of problems, you know, we shot it on 35, so it's like old style movie. It's lit beautifully with the elegant, simple. We had a third of our budget taken away three days before we kicked off shooting, which meant I had to take almost 10 days worth of shooting time out of the schedule. So I shot that movie in 28 days. That movie needed 35 minimum to shoot it out properly because it just means your ratio, your take ratio per setup is so full of juice and you've got all that talent. I mean, I had great cast, uh, but we had to shoot it out like we were you know, on, a, on a student set because we were up against time. Uh, and when I look at it, I only saw it the other day after 10 years, and I look at it, I think we did a really good job for what we had. But uh, if our producers hadn't been short-sighted and uh, hadn't lied and cheated... <laughs> <laughs> this is a wonderful platform. This is this is great. I mean, just why don't you just cheated and lied and deceived? Why don't you individually name Hollywood? Them? Yeah, they, they they would never make it even there. They they were just so substandard. Uh, but anyway, the long and the short of it is that we did finish it. It is a terrific ode to the uh, total avarice of a small bunch of entitled people who know no moral who are amoral in all practices and because at the time it was released uh, there was a bit of an art and a bit of a and i used to be married to someone who was in the art world and um the behavior is totally consistent i might have and uh, the leading gallerist larry gagosian and he's just said the only people who are going to be unhappy about this movie are the ones that aren't in it and we managed to cover at that time most of the collectors. There was an element of a lot of people in it. And I kind of muscled in a whole lot, you know, a whole lot of um, vignettes, if you like, and people would recognize the tropes. But uh, it bombed, totally bombed. Oh, it did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On its, on its cinema release, it made, it, it did a great DVD. It, it made DVDs great again. But in America, it had a better, a better run. But in England, it bombed because, the, you know, my absolutely myopic, idiotic, ill-suited producers wouldn't see how to release a movie if it was staring them in the face. <laughs> I mean, what a star lineup too. Alan Cumming, that constellation of people you do not get by uh, not having an arsenal of charm. So what you're saying is, what you're effectively saying is, is that it shouldn't have bombed, but it bombed because of wrangling. It bombed because of petty vanities between a small body of people who lost sight of the bigger picture. And had I been a producer on it, the thing would have actually uh, made headway because the person who should have produced it didn't want to pay as much money at the time of sale in, in Cannes for it. But they were really suited to it. They really, that movie would have suited their stable and their audience would have gone to it because it would have been consistent with their past. And instead, the distributors had no example of this type of film within their canon, so it was just too eccentric for them. And it was blunt. You know, it's a document much more than it is a film. It's absolutely verbatim. There's not a line in it that someone hasn't said. Nigel's having drunk, having basically had the glass of water which we refilled there for a bit you've now drunk it again 
I think Nigel had some. Uh, we were talking earlier about um, discussing your your. Let's fill the glass up again and talk about your project you're working on at the moment. Nigel's got some questions he would love to ask you. I know that. No, absolutely. No, it's just you know before we got there, I was just really thinking about how you know I don't know the way you discussed that film and the, the, and the industry itself, and you know you broke that that town, and it begs the question of. What what makes a film successful then? Is it it's it's solely on the 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 marketing after the fact and you know the producers knowing how to how to actually sell a film in out there because obviously after the fact you your film went to DVD and then it was down to a whole different set of marketers or people just yeah, yeah. finding it, the it, film. It, it becomes cruder once you don't have a great film success. The film success, you know, the cinema success promotes much wider success. And if you've got to scramble backwards to get a foothold in the DVD market. It's much more of a trench warfare thing. But Boogie could have been a much better movie and it could have been far better handled by uh, having, ha having vision. And I made lots of advertising so I could see where they were going wrong, why they were going wrong. And they not, their vanities wouldn't allow themselves to be told because I hadn't done it before they had but they hadn't any idea about promotion and you need to set things you know i ended up putting on the premiere myself in london simply because the distributor wasn't going to do it he was just going to release it without any fanfare but you look at that movie now and i'd be really interested people revisiting that film are uh, refreshed it holds and i don't say that out of vanity no um, it does 100 percent. I, I i checked it out night before last and, and actually I had to check back and look at the date of it because I thought to myself, yeah. how, what was this more recent than it was? I actually thought it was very much a modern film and not that it's not it's that old. It's only you know ten years old or something like that. But it's, it's literally it, ten ten years old today. This is oh, really? this is go. its tenth anniversary, which is one of the reasons why I thought this day was great. Oh fantastic. Well what about you? So you then created a film called and before we get on to your current one, which you're working on down the dirt track, which I think is fascinating. It's, a bit to talk about there too. I just wanted to touch on Here Lies because I had a look at the, the the preview of that as well and, and, and read quite a bit about it. And is it, this is a movie which you actually cast yourself in the film. Yeah, it's a, it's basically a reply to the filmmaking experience of Boogie Woogie. So I would suggest uh, this should become a, a a stable diet of all film education uh, semesters, a complete. PhD student body should be committed to using Here Lies as their central body of work. And I say this without being immodest. It, oh, it, irony. It, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's a, a truly well-balanced metafictional film. And metafictional <laughs> being, <laughs> being the word that you don't hear too often. <laughs> no, no, metafiction is, is, is much underrated. You know, it's, it's where you, the process itself is part and parcel of the narrative. And so I, I, it's a film within a film within a film, if you like. So my presence in my movie is in fact charting my difficulty with my movie. And the documentary that segued into the narrative is real. There's absolutely not a frame of it that's not real. Which as a result, it makes it an extremely difficult movie to, um you know, get your head around the first time you watch it. <coughs> watch it several times. If, if I had released it a little later, because it, it, it won a competition in, in, in Paris called the uh, European 
uh, independent film competition, which is a terrific, one of the highest festivals you could possibly win in the independent world. But uh, apart from Sundance, <laughs> the, the thing is, again, timing's everything. Weinstein only got dealt a blow in 2016. Had I waited, the innate misogyny that I was exploring in Hair Lies, because it's bas basically, it's about the unbridled misogyny of an artist who subjects his models to a unrelenting level of pressure, uh, selfish in all, in extreme, in extremist. And then it's mirrored against the filmmaker's passion to make his film and overriding all sorts of obvious sensitivities in others if he can't. So these two men are bristling with their ambitions as they progress down the line. And of course, there's inevitable cliff face for both of them. Yeah, so, so to your point, I guess timing is everything in that type of movie, but, could, but did it get, was, was there interest in it during the Weinstein issue or right now? Yeah, we got we got we had a we had a decent run because it was a streamed movie. It wasn't a it wasn't a screen release film. It was a digital film, and we had a decent amount of initial in the first six months. We had a good run of viewers, but you you're not rewarded greatly in the independent streaming environment because we were pirated, and the pirate screening uh, saw more volume than the paid for site by a factor of 100 to 1. Wow. If I had got 50 cents for every private pirated screening, I would have made my money back tenfold. My goodness. Wow. Is there anything that one can do to stop that? How does that even happen? I mean, is, what, what platforms do people access the film? Hunt them down and kill them. There you go. <laughs> that is, in fact, the, the, the premise of his next movie, um, <laughs> which is somewhere down the dirt track. Um, well, just as, as an addendum to that is that it is, and particularly in COVID, it's completely and utterly desensitized of anyone not to reward a creative person. So from musicians to players to performers to makers, for their work to be hacked and, and piratized and 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 distributed free without a source of re reward is just shooting everybody in the foot because there'll come a time when no one can actually make the stuff on an independent level because there's just, there's no juice in it. But going back to Down a Dirt Track. Yes, going back to, to Down a Dirt Track. So you have a, a, a new movie um, in the works and I know that you, yeah, right before COVID hit, you, you describe it as you were, you were at the altar, so to speak, um, about to make this movie and of course, all hell let loose, and, and now you're sort of, it's a bit on the back burner. However, it's, it's an interesting film set both in the last decade of apartheid and present day South Africa. You grew up in Zimbabwe. Is this a story that you, you, you've, you've always known and wanted to tell? Where, where did the story come from and why now? It's an interesting um, story. Uh, it's a microcosmic analysis of two people who had experienced a terrific upheaval during the last vestiges, last days of apartheid in its kind of most decadent period where they were beside themselves with racial rage. And they were both uh, involved in a calamitous event, murderous event, and harbored for 30 years complete misconception about 
what had transpired and who was responsible and so forth. And then they're brought together at a funeral. Uh, and these two unlikely characters are bound by virtue of their misconceptions and reveal them. And that produces a, a, a fascinating outcome for both of them. The things they didn't think were the cause become apparent, and they themselves are part of the very thing that they overlooked. And where did this story, where did you get, where did this story come to you? I mean, was this something that... The story is based partially on a truthful murder, on an account of, a, of an assassination that wasn't accounted for. Uh, and I, I was always curious why, I, I knew of it intimately, why it wouldn't be, because it was politically not appropriate for the nationalists, the, the, the apartheid government at the time. They had had, in 1966, they had Dr. Fervut assassinated on the steps of parliament by a parliamentarian messenger, a chap called Tesfadas, a Greek uh, mixed-race guy. And he had, he had deliberately targeted Fervut and spent a wonderful time planning it, you know, uh, came to the country to do it. He was a communist, and uh, he had no real reason. He wasn't South African at all. He was just very, very opposed to, you know, bearing in mind, there's only 20 years after Nazism. So I've always wanted to tell a story about South Africa because it's such a fascinating country. You know, there's 12 languages. There, there's multiple tribes. There's an enormous history of just from the Boer War, from the African Wars, from, from colonial, uh, uh, you know, uh, people think apartheid was created by the nationalists. It was actually created by the mining industry in the 1880s. Hmm. Um, they robbed the claimants who happened to be either Indian, colored or black of their claims and forcibly captured, uh, imprisoned them as laborers. And that was the origins of it. So South Africa has a very hard, uh, aggressive narrative. And um, I haven't seen movies where they've looked at that in a dispassionate way, where they've examined it. And my characters give me the opportunity to do that. And how are you hoping that this is going to affect people? I mean, obviously, right now, with Black Lives Matters and everything else around the world, as a, as a global protest that's going on, and this is a story with a lot of pain in it and, you know, obviously very relevant to how you, are you hoping to affect people in, in what way? Well, it's a positive story in the final analysis, but, um, you know, it's, it's ironic because when I was touting the script, uh, I've had it for a while. I mean, I've had it in different guises. It's much improved now, I have to say, quite recently. But when I first started trying to get traction with it, people would say to me, but a black lead actor, and most of the cast are black, they can't see anyone financing that. And it's changed. So changed. So I will be really surprised if I can't finance it because every character in it has a really juicy moment. And for an actor, um, it's got a very nice arc. And for what, I, I don't want to give away the, uh, the, 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 the sort of conceit of the film, but when you can see in microcosm lives that are affected by a difficult and, and uh, dangerous event and how the ramifications of that, 
it should breed analysis. And when you have a country and countries all over the world where political extremes are in action, the population who are then victims of these extreme politicians, and we have it everywhere. It's not, not just America, England with Brexit, you have Russia, you have China, where politicians are uh, distended from their electorate and they're emboldened to be extreme. And South Africa is an example of just how extreme governments could behave with impunity and treat people an enormous disregard for any fellowship. Uh, and it's amazing. When you read Oliver Tambo's initial ANC documents, and you read about how he, you know, the whole sort of founding narrative of the ANC wasn't any racism in it at all. In the narrative, there was not a single accusatory tone about white people. But they were the very oppressed you know, because even if you weren't a voting nationalist in South Africa as a white person, you just basically lived off the hurt and exploitation of every black person. Un I lived there for five years. It's the most complicated period as a teenager. It, it, it resulted in, in uh, stunting my emotions. I'm now fully reformed. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've actually had the opportunity to visit South Africa as well. And, and I, you know, predominantly photographed shooting and what have you in Cape mm -hmm. Town. And I just never really forgotten just how an unusual place it was because it was, I mean, you know, pretty much all the vegetation seemed European, the trees and the, the style of the building and what have you. You had no idea that you sort of were, you know, in a way that you were in Africa, other than if you look around yourself, obviously you see people who are African, but it's just such a weird zone to be sort of right there on the tip of Africa and feel like you're almost in the Mediterranean. Mediterranean. Absolutely. If yeah, so, yeah. But, but you didn't see, though, and, and it's not expected that you would, is that in the time of apartheid, the South African government thought it sensible to create what was called Bantustans, these homelands, where they then forcibly shunted urban populations into these you know, completely squalid, uh, ill-suited land masses that were relatively tiny for the volume of people put in there. And then they could discount those volumes against the citizenship in South Africa proper. So it made the population, made the white population look bigger in relationship to the black population, because when they created these independent Bantu stamps, they filled them full of the urban blacks. And that's where they were registered to live. And the fact that they came into the cities and things, uh, they had to get the paperwork for it. But their registration was in the Bantu stance. And it's, it's a little bit like um, a concentration camp as a farm, large farm. That's how they constructed it. So, there, so why you didn't see any natural Africanism in Cape Town is because it had been sucked out over 40 years. And it was all just in the shanty towns by the airport and in these squalid um, townships that were left to just be the sort of cesspit of violence and unhappiness. So really, quite, it's quite a tragic, overlooked period of brutality and completely the baby son of Nazism. Is, are you seeing that in reverse now? That anger, has that kind of come through 
to current politics. I'm getting, I'm hearing reports of, uh, as we know, Mugabe was was with his generals was a, you know had the whole land land grabbing, grabbing restitution, returning farms to the Zimbabwean people. And quite a lot of white farmers who've been farming there for more than a hundred years or something, but you know, turfed off their land. It was taken back by you know by Mugabe and his. It turned out actually in the end, the people didn't really benefit from it. It was a small group of people. But anyway, um, has that anger carried through? Because it has that land grab has now moved across into South Africa, and you're now getting reports of that anger coming through with current government sanctioning again. The I suppose the farm grab, the land grab, or, or returning the land to you know the, to the rightful owners. I mean that is happening, and people are getting and the white farmers who have been there for I mean whatever fifty years or sixty years or hundred years are starting to. I mean there have been a lot of violence again against them. Is that a sort of just a theme running through this situation? I mean there have been. It's a very it's a really contentious and complicated thing because in both instances. When the when Nelson Mandela came to power and there was a, then the entire constitutional ramifications, there was a big issue about land ownership, and so portions of land were reallocated, and then it was assigned that those existing areas were legitimate. And the same thing happened in Zimbabwe after 81, after Lord Carrington's negotiations. Mugabe took back a bunch of farms, and then, at which the English taxpayer paid for, actually, in, in 81. And by 83, when the constitution was all up and running, the existing Zimbabwean farm holders were legitimate. They were bona fide. And the same thing happened in South Africa. But the issue has always been that at the negotiating table, when Mandela came to power, he was in no real position of power because all the means of production were owned by the white people. So they were speaking from a position of financial strength and could sway the negotiations by virtue of largesse. So it's an inverted act of patronage, if you like. You know, uh, you, you, you accept this and we might in the future give you that. Of course, that never took place. So subsequently, 30 years after the change, you have a young generation who are born in abject poverty. Their futures have been absolutely, I mean, and their futures have been completely decimated by political mishandling of an opportunity. And so because you have rampant corruption within government and bureaucratic organizations, uh, unavoidable because they inherited a nationalist architecture, if you like, of bureaucracy. And it was rampantly corrupt as well. It only served one group of people well. Currently, it's just flipped around. If you're poor in South Africa, you get jacked nothing. And that body of impoverished people are realizing the crop of politicians haven't their interests. So what's the resort is um, to go violent. So you have something like over 600 farmers murdered in a month in South Africa. But unlike Zimbabwe, these people aren't able to hold the farms because there's a lot of legality involved. Uh, and, you know, because in Zimbabwe, you have very few people, very few white people. In South Africa, you have 6 million white people. It's a big electorate. My goodness. 
obviously it's a very serious subject matter, but um, with a film like that, how are you going to make it? Are you going to obviously going to shoot it, hoping to shoot it in South Africa? And is, is what, at what point are we thinking that this, is, this film might be able to be made? I'm aiming for July next year to shoot it. We found all the locations, because I already had all the locations. We found, we, we were already almost in place. We just had to, because I wanted to cast it using local talent, because it's also in Venda and Zulu and Sutu and Afrikaans. So it's not an English movie. It's a foreign film by all. So there's English in it, but it also deals with the languages that are on the ground. And I was literally only going to cast one international actor, actress from Europe in the principal female role. There's only three white roles in the film. So the rest are all of local. And there's a great acting school in, in, in South Africa. You know, they did black sales and there's a huge film industry there. Whereas 15 years ago, it was very sort of makeshift. Now it's as competitive as Hollywood. Fantastic. Well. So having sort of been on the wrong side of the Harvey Weinstein business with Here Lies and, and all that had to offer, maybe karmically, maybe karmically you've now come around to the, the Black Lives Matter movement. You're making a film, in, you know, getting stuck into the kind of issues of what's going on in South Africa and, how, you know, your film and, and perhaps this time around. I love that. I mean, do you know something? I had, we've talked about your film quite a lot when I've seen you, but I hadn't until a minute ago realized that you were shooting it in, that it wasn't going to be, um, that you're using all these languages I and mean, that it's not just an English speaking film, you know, or, or, you know. No, weirdly what you do is you see, you shoot, you shoot one pass of it in English and then you shoot another pass in all the, all the local languages and you get two movies, but you get before this distribution issue really, because uh, uh, in, in, in America, it'll be subtitled anyway. It'll be a foreign film. And for the French, the Germans, the Italians, it's a foreign movie. It's literally only English for the English because it's a little bit like ringing the bell in Whitehall. You know, do you remember this? Because a lot, you know, my, my feeling about it is it's, it's an interesting story. It's a very emotional story. But Black Lives Matter, it's a very concerning problem because interpretation is everything in how people act. And if the interpretation uh, is at variance with the wider knowledge of events, you then you, you get a tone in the behavior of people that um, can lower and reduce and water down the actual implications of it. There is definitely a huge complaint. And a country like South Africa is a perfect environment to exercise that complaint because it's very justified. 100%, as it is every, all over the world. Look, you have a, before we get on to the last part of Shaken and Stirred, we, we, what else do you have in the works? You've got a, a play you've been writing as well, and what it's else you've play, got going? And during COVID, I've written, I've, I'm nearly good way through a novel. So I've had a great writing time. It's just been me and my woodland shack and Tom being the only person I see because he can sustain my rants. Yeah. <laughs> and he has a good wine cellar he's got helps. a fantastic wine cellar and he's a very generous host so you know what's there not to like about a ginger guy yeah. <laughs> don't answer that question like don't even go there don't I say, anything. say that's a whole nother it's, show but um you know. before let's go straight on to it it's, we have a, a, something called last orders on shaken and stirred which is a sort of rapid fire question moment and um i believe that you actually came up with one of the questions for us back in the early days of the show and 
been a very successful, one of the few questions that gets re repetitively asked. Um, and we kind of changed it a little bit for you. So here we go. If a film is made in your life, who do you wish should direct it? Uh, Serge Einstein. And why? He's dead. I would have to take his place. <laughs> that is a definitive answer. That is a definitive answer. Okay, this is one of Tom's new favorites. And we're all going to have to look up Serge Einstein now. Clearly. What gets your goat and what floats your boat? Well, harmony is the thing that floats my boat. I, I like to be in a room full of concord. Uh, what gets my boat is goat. The, the pernicious and weedly commentary of our commentators that are uh, a plethora of lowbrow, vanity-seeking waste of spaces. And so that's what gets every day. If I'm to look at the newspaper or read it or, or, or see a bit of news, I'm just shocked at the, the complete lack of inquiry. Well, and banality, and uh, oh. banality. But again, listen, I'm gonna fill that glass up again here because if it wasn't for these, you know, I once, and again, I'm going to repeat, probably repeating myself, but I did once ask a very senior psychoanalyst after studying, you know, the human condition for 40 years, it, what, it, what, if anything, she was still surprised by. And she said, there was something she was still surprised by. And I said, what? And she said, the fact that 98% of the population live in a state of self-deception on a daily basis. Now, without this 98% of the people, you get to pick your 2% of people who you can probably have a conversation with. Without the 98%, the world would be, uh, I think, a duller place. I mean, I know, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I think there'd be nothing to feel good about. He's frozen. <laughs> He's frozen. He's paused himself. There he is. Hey, okay. Uh, I love it. I think now what, what's happened is, is Duncan completely dropped out. And as we mentioned at the beginning, Duncan was, in fact, inside of... Tom's kitchen or sort of with a zebra head, but I think the zebra collapsed, ruined the internet. We were in the middle of last orders. Okay, so if not a filmmaker, who would you be? I would be a judo instructor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and why? What the hell? The, uh, like films, it's quite like casting. So there's a lot of close contact. There's rough and tumble. It's playful and it's competitive. Love it. Perfect. I'll take that. Um, before we get to our final question, any tip for aspiring actors out there? I have another job in your arsenal. That's very reassuring. Glass half empty at this point or completely spilled and knocked over. Uh, and what no, else? In, in, like in all arts, if they're going to be good, they're just not going to accept anything other than doing it. Fair enough. And finally, shaken or stirred? Stirred. And why stirred? You know, takes a bit longer. Oh, good answer. <laughs> I like that. I know, right? Pretty much everyone says shaken. It's funny. You're one of the very few people that have said stirred, and I've always wondered why. Great, great answers. Duncan Ward, thank you so much for coming on Shaken and Stirred, and, and I hope look forward to meeting you and seeing you again soon, uh, probably at Tom's house, probably over a glass of fabulous wine. Uh, in the meantime, thank you for amusing us and for telling us so much about, you know, the film industry and the film business. And there's a lot of people who are fascinated. And, Can uh, I just say one thing, though? I I'm not in the film business. You're not in the film business. No, <laughs> not anymore. Not right now, that's for sure. None of us are, right? That's what not we're right now. Into. Oh, he is the master. He's a, he's, a, he's a master. He could do a good comeback. There we go. There you go. <laughs> Take care. 
And thank you so much for everything. Good luck with everything. And we look forward to seeing your film. See ya. Bye, guys. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya. See ya.